Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. It's the 9th of May, 2022, and I'm coming to you from the Visegrad Inside office. I'm Miles Maftian, editorial director here, and I would say that it's quite a busy week for us and for the region more generally. Top of mind is the 9th of May Victory Day parade that's being held today. So Putin holds this parade with, I think, a lot of us understanding that there's a possibility of mass mobilization. What we've heard is that Putin could declare widespread victory in Ukraine. And this had us thinking here at Visegrad Insight, can Russia ever actually win this war? What does it mean for Russia to win this war? We asked some of our top experts. We wanted to know precisely this question to survey what some of our top thought leaders had to say about this. There are some really great, insightful responses to this, which we've made free on our website. So please do check those out and follow us on social media for certain snippets from this. Apart from the 9th of May celebrations, another larger topic on the European agenda this week is the Future of Europe Conference. This is certainly something that we focused a lot of time and energy on. We've written a lot of pieces on this, and even this week we will have several pieces on precisely this topic. Today, the final report from the Conference on the Future of Europe will be announced in Strasbourg to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, European Parliament President Roberta Metzola, and French President Emmanuel Macron which we know this country holds the actual six-month presidency of the Council of the EU. So this is something that we would want you to take a look at when we have these articles published this week to sort of try to garner a debate and to structure what the future agenda will be for the region more broadly. And finally, new sanctions. New sanctions on Russian oil have actually been postponed due to a lack of agreement. Slovakia and Czech Republic want more time, while Hungary seems to be pushing for a total exemption from the sanctions. A new proposal is likely to be presented on the 10th of May, so this is something to certainly keep an eye out. And now, what we wanted to do was sort of shorten our weekly outlook that we have to present to you a more detailed interview that is in our podcast. So it's a bit longer, but it's incredibly important. Our editor-in-chief, Wojciech Prishbilski, he actually sat down with uh, Wrocław Stetka and Sabina Michel to discuss the liberal turn in the region and more specifically the role of media. So uh, as a background, Stetka and Michel, they're, they're running a larger illiberal turn project that uh, essentially attempts to, to fill in this gap and the gap there is is that we want to carry out, they are carrying out the, the first ever systematic comparative study of news consumption and political polarization in Central and Eastern Europe. Obviously, this is a key point in time when the region is undergoing dramatic changes given populism, illiberalism, and backsliding. And, uh, and topic of mind is information resilience from, uh, from different disinformation and disinformation actors. My name is Václav Štitka. I am principal investigator of the illiberal turn project at Loughborough University in the UK. 
my name is Sabina Michel. I'm a professor of media and cultural analysis at Loughborough University and a co-investigator on the Liberal Turn project. And I recommend the Visegrad Insight podcast. All right. So, Václav, Sabine, what do we know about the media after, we could say probably after the pandemic and in the middle of the war in Ukraine uh, that you've been researching for now many years uh, during the illiberal turn project at, at Laboro University. What is changing and, and, you know, and what's the focus of, of your study? So our study uh, began before the pandemic uh, in uh, May 2019 when uh, we were observing these tendencies in, in many Central and Eastern European countries towards a gradual decline of democratic standards and media freedom. And uh, at that time, uh, the dominant sort of narrative was uh, uh, the one about populism and authoritarianism. But uh, we have started observing something something slightly different uh, that has been capturing uh, researchers' attention. Uh, and that uh, something has been uh, labeled illiberalism or illiberal democracy as a very specific form of governance that uh, uh, strips democracy off its uh, liberal foundations and principles. Uh, in other words, uh, it, it's a political uh, strategy or a movement that is trying to uh, keep the facade of the democratic regime by especially uh, keeping uh, uh, election cycle intact formally, but pretty much everything else that is uh, nominally associated with democracy is being gradually dismantled. The key democratic institutions are being captured by the illiberal uh, leaders and, and, and governments. And that, of course, uh, includes uh, the media. So we have uh, started our project in a particular moment of, of time when Uh, we have seen a great, great increased uh, tendency of uh, illiberal political leaders to uh, capture the media and use communication channels and technologies to uh, influence uh, the population in their countries, to, to, to mobilize their supporters and uh, uh, manipulate public, public opinion. Uh, at the same time, obviously, we've been seeing uh, the, the inflow of, of disinformation, Info of the hate speech, so the role, the whole role of social media in the political communication ecosystem, which has also been uh, part of uh, this illiberal trend in many countries, uh, and uh, finally uh, there has been an increased, uh, an increasing uh, tendency towards polarization. Uh, again, something not specific for Central and Eastern European countries, but uh, very much uh, uh, making its making its inroads into the political system of of these countries. Yeah, illiberal democracy has been this concept that we first heard from Zakaria, Zakaria maybe, or yeah, heard Zakaria, yeah. and then uh, Surkov used it in Russia, and then Vlad, and then uh, Viktor Orban, yeah. and it's it has a certain history, and by now I think we can agree that it's primarily describing a democracy that doesn't perform. You know, as a democracy, fully, and mm. so it's a cover-up. We're it's not a, really it's a liberal. Yeah. And in this, in the center of the problem, it seems, at least if we look in Central Europe, is this relationship uh, with the public sphere that is being is, that is that is being captured uh, by by the political actors. And I was wondering, maybe Sabine, uh, you you could explain, 
where did you find any, uh, you know, some relationship between the, 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 the politics, the polity of, 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 of the liberal regime, illiberal turn, and, and the media, media consumption, media use? Well, our project actually focused on the relationship between the increasingly illiberal media system, or the illiberal public sphere, as we're trying to hold it now, and um, uh, attitudes among the public. Uh, so we were specifically interested to what extent and in what way this changing or decoupling of democracy and liberalism within the media spectrum is actually changing public attitudes as well and uh, leading to a surge of illiberal attitudes. And we focused on several criteria. We looked, for instance, at um, attitudes to LGBTQ rights, attitudes to immigration, attitudes to Russia as well, and a number of other topics, democracy as well, uh, that became, I have to say, even more topics of the, over the course of the project. Um, and uh, you started at the beginning by asking us, um, you know, what has changed as well. Um, and some of the changes that we've seen during the course of the pandemic, which has actually accelerated the liberal turn in the, um, in, in the region that we're looking at, were prefigured in a way by the data that we collected um, uh, at, the, at the start of our project. And uh, with regards to the Ukraine war as well, um, the patterns of responses to the Ukraine war in Eastern Europe, again, are very much prefigured in the data that we collected as well. Um, uh, how, what kind of patterns we've seen, I would isolate maybe two key uh, messages there. Uh, the first is perhaps a surprising one, and it relates to social media in particular. So we often tend to blame social media for the rise of uh, uh, liberalism uh, in the world more generally, in particular in the West. But our results suggest that we have to be a bit cautious with blaming social media in particular um, and, and, and thinking that uh, they are actually the root cause of the rise of uh, and the spreading of illiberalism. Uh, quite to the contrary, we show in our project that they can play an ambiguous role depending on the nature of the media system as a whole, the nature of, of uh, public attitudes as well as they are. Uh, so in, in an environment where um, uh, the decoupling of illiberalism and democracy has already, already taken place uh, in a country such as Hungary, for instance, or Serbia in particular, which were some of the countries we looked at, um, social media actually are an important channel of liberal attitudes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so opposition to liberalism uh, rather than vice versa. And that's an important message, I think, for politicians, for regulators, because if we keep emphasizing just the role of digital media, uh, we might perhaps give the power uh, of, of, um, of, of, of those who actually are fostering the uh, illiberal turn uh, to then control this media spectrum and further uh, the rise of illiberalism rather than uh, stopping it if we, um, uh, if we are not careful. And the second important message is that, again, we, we shouldn't be overemphasizing the role of digital media and we should um, remain attuned to the importance of so-called legacy media, broadcasting, as well as public service media in particular. So that was another very clear result in our um, in our uh, project. So the importance of an independent public service media uh, sector for uh, maintaining actually um, uh, um, uh, a liberal outlook on the on the world and, and preventing the spreading of liberal uh, attitudes. And I think you you really know what you're speaking about because you have been involving the European Broadcasting Union with a lot of public service 
media uh, from around Europe in this research. So there is this practical, impactful element in the research that is also about talking to media regulators and, or media actors from, from, from this sphere. How, how do you see this? Uh, I mean, what, what, uh, what did they learn or what would they benefit from, from that research also? We have formulated a set of practical recommendations for uh, media uh, regulators, uh, policymakers, as well as journalists. And uh, obviously we are hoping that uh, our uh, ideas and, and recommendations will be taken on board, at least by some of them. Uh, with regards to uh, television broadcasters and uh, public service media in particular, our message is quite clear. Uh, it is uh, absolutely essential for uh, liberal democratic public sphere to maintain independent public service broadcaster, even in the so-called digital age, mm -hmm. because as we know, uh, it's still broadcasting still fulfills a huge uh, uh, role in the information ecosystem for uh, a large part of population. And uh, we have seen in our countries that we have focused in, uh, on, on, in our research that wherever the public service broadcasters have been captured by the illiberal governments, the public uh, sphere and, and, and the general information ecosystem uh, is showing signs of much deeper polarization. This is uh, uh, something that we can illustrate on the contrast between Czech Republic as a country which uh, uh, still holds up to democratic standards and, and uh, levels of media freedom that we associate with, with functioning democracy, even if uh, uh, obviously not, uh, not perfect. And on the other hand, uh, on the other side, Poland and, and Hungary, and especially Hungary and Serbia, where the broadcasters have been uh, captured by the governments and where our data indicates a stark division between just two camps, essentially, two camps of uh, media, uh, the liberal one and the illiberal one. And uh, the public service broadcasters are firmly in the illiberal camp. And the problem is that there is nothing in the middle, so to, so to say. Uh, there is no sort of neutral, uh, central middle ground that people could uh, uh, look up to and uh, where people could uh, find uh, impartial, uh, factually based information. That is the role that in the Czech public sphere plays the uh, public service television and some other uh, media outlets as, as well. But we don't really see much of that in, in the other ecosystems. Uh, because there's such a deep level of partisanship that uh, uh, doesn't enable for a, a strong uh, media brand to occupy that kind of central role. In your data, which also uh, is supported, uh, if you compare it with the data, I think, from the European uh, Media Observatory uh, research, there is this exactly this element that Poland, Polish media and also Hungarian media are extremely partisanship, whether they are public or publicly funded, then in quotation marks, I mean, we can say in par you know, in parentheses, we can say they are public, but they are actually partisan, and or they are private, they are independent, they they are taking sides, uh, and in your samples that you you've studied and and presented, uh, which is uh, absolutely 
invaluable uh, source of information on how media consumption goes across you know, political preferences. There is one striking example for Hungary and Poland, which says that actually most of the people are kind of liberal-minded or liberal or open. Uh, they, they prefer openness, let's say, category of, of political views, and they are not supporting the government and they prefer consumption of media which are maybe not so pro-government or cap captured by the government. And yet, this majority is not, not choosing the supposedly the opposition, right? That, that would be something else. So I'm really puzzled. I don't know if you, if, you tried, if you tried to explain it to me. I think what you're referring to is not necessarily political attitudes as such, uh, you know, so it's not that the majority is necessarily, you know, pro or anti-government or pro-liberal. Uh, what we found is that um, with the partial exception of Serbia, the majority of the population uh, in the countries that we looked at still want to have views from both sides, yeah? So they, they do not like this divided uh, uh, system in which they live. They don't like partisan um, uh, uh, media. They, there's an actual thirst for hearing voices from both sides for different reasons, curiosity. Sometimes it is listening to the enemy, yeah, which mm -hmm. is a, a, a valid, maybe a little bit more problematic uh, reason. But there is a, also a su substantial proportion of people who actually see that uh, by listening just to one side, there's hearing only one side of the story. So we have, you know, plenty of quotes from our interviews where interviewees have been telling us, I know the truth is above that. Yeah? I need to hear the voice from both sides, pro and anti-government, in order to actually understand what is happening. And this is in countries that no longer have, as Václav says, um, a, an independent public service uh, uh, um, a broadcaster that would be able to provide such a balance of opinions. So we see this actual thirst and need on the side of the audience uh, for such a media environment. Mm. Uh, and I think it's important that we capture this moment while this need is still there uh, and we reverse the trend that we're seeing because mm. once we come to a situation that we find unfortunately in Serbia where you know this trend has gone on for a much longer time it becomes very difficult to persuade people to come back because then people become used to a polarized environment where uh, they are uh, uh, they have no choice but to listen just to one side and and they be become accustomed to that mm. and no longer trust uh, the possibility of of a more balanced uh, yeah and, and indeed that that is reflected also in in the data that you presented in Serbia majority uh, of of the audiences actually prefer the government sort of narrative uh, that is kind of closed narrative in a, in that sense uh, I I'm wondering I mean that's definitely good news for democracy overall as a project which answers the basic needs apparently of of the societies that want information and they actually, well, then I am puzzled and also maybe you can help me out. They don't trust media, so they choose, you know, to, to, to pick and choose the, the information from both sides to get their own opinion. And maybe this is an element of media literacy that, that, that can be found. It's, it's a good thing, actually. What do you, how, how would you answer to that? Yeah, I recognize that uh, some of the data is, is a bit uh, difficult to unpack and, and, and interpret in a straightforward way. But I think that you mentioned this very important aspect that uh, should complement the 
explanation regarding the consumption uh, side, and that's the trust. Uh, because we have indeed seen in our data that um, many people are looking both ways in their media consumption, news, news consumption, and that actually uh, goes against this, some of the popular opinions about the existence of so-called echo chambers, which are actually not as populous, not as uh, strong in, in uh, our, our countries as one might think. But what matters as well is even if people are looking at di different directions, uh, they might not trust the, the media the same, the, the, to, to the same extent. So, uh, yes, uh, th there is a large part of population that uh, has a um, relatively open diet, media diet, but when it comes to trusting the, the, the information that they are receiving, we, sti we still see a high correlation between uh, media that provide impartial or uh, independent information and, and, and quality information and the level of trust uh, of people. And that correlation is observed in all the four countries, although in Serbia it's not as strong for the reasons that have already been mentioned, because people have simply lost probably the sense of uh, uh, quality that uh, they should expect from, from media as they have in, in, in the other countries. But, but the, the, the link is, is, is quite, quite clear. So what matters, after all, is, is the independence and, and quality of information uh, that determines whether people trust the information or not. Now, let's take it to uh, a political level uh, and, and a practical application. We, we live through pandemic. Um, let's say, hopefully, it's ended. We're meeting here at Laubery University at the sides of the conference that you've just organized, bringing in many more people who are also studying the illiberalism and basically it was a fantastic exchange of all sorts of research that is contemporary in trying to capture the contemporary uh, dilemmas and challenges to, to the liberal democracy project. Um, and there is a war in Ukraine that was popping up every now and then throughout the conference also. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, what are your thoughts of, you know, how much of this research should be also put in, in, put in the context of the war, of security uh, in, in our democratic societies? How, how do you see this value from, you know, the uttermost important uh, things of today, of, of European unity and, and, and resilience against bigger authoritarian threats coming from Russia today? So where, where is the practical use uh, that you would pr probably say, you know, should be taken to a policy level and, and discuss, you know, as a, as a maybe even security dilemma? Well, if anything, I, I strongly believe that both crises that we have uh, experienced in the last couple of years, uh, obviously the pandemic uh, to start with, and now the crisis in Ukraine, have only highlighted the need for uh, independent uh, quality news providers that people can trust, uh, because both events uh, have uh, started a huge wave of disinformation. Pandemic uh, brought a lot of uh, dis and misinformation concerning the COVID, concerning the vaccines, and that has definitely weakened the trust of population in, in the governments and in democratic institutions. And now we are amidst uh, an inflow of uh, state-directed, uh, uh, state-manufactured uh, propaganda uh, from Russia 
that is targeting very much the similar population. We see a clear overlap between those who are most receptive to the pandemic misinformation and those ones who are receptive uh, to uh, Russian propaganda. So the key here is, the key thing is to, to, to keep and, and support and strengthen the uh, quality media uh, in, in each national um, information ecosystem that people will be able to, to turn to when they are faced with disinformation and they can trust those news outlets to actually check those disinformation and, and to uh, let them know whether this is a, a, a hoax, a fake news propaganda or not. And of course, the other lesson uh, is the one uh, that tells uh, national governments to uh, put much more effort uh, into uh, into improving the state of uh, media and digital literacy by, by, by the people. So mm -hmm. clearly people themselves uh, have to be equipped with the kind of skills to distinguish what kind of information can be trusted or not. Perhaps the last question, uh, a bit speculative again, sorry. I'll Uh, I know it's not so comfortable often to, you know, being a researcher uh, to, to, to try to answer that. But uh, have you found a correlation how disinformation, uh, speaking of the war, of the pandemic or any other pattern, influences voter behavior? Uh, is there a link? Uh, is there uh, something we can say, you know, that's how it happens? I'm not so sure directly about the role of misinformation, but certainly the role of polarization and the extent of the impact of illiberalism and the extent of the liberal public sphere, as opposed to a, a, a you know a, a solid uh, liberal public sphere in a country, has the has a direct I think relationship to the vulnerability of the country uh, to crisis moments. Yeah, what we've seen both during the pandemic and now during the war is that countries that are more polarized are less able to mobilize in a crisis uh, because they are always faced uh, with um, you know, a part of the population that will not trust the messages, depending on who's in power. Uh, we've seen that very clearly in Serbia and Hungary during the pandemic, uh, where, where the crisis, health crisis messaging actually has been um, faced with particularly ch particular challenges due to the uh, presence of polarization um, and uh, illiberalism. And I think we're seeing a similar pattern again uh, with the war as well. Um, uh, now, uh, obviously, the impact of the war does vary a little bit depending on uh, the historical relationship of each of these countries with, with Russia. So there is a an additional complicating factor there. Um, and we might perhaps speculate that uh, the experience of Poland uh, might help turn the liberal tide uh, in a different direction, but it's too early uh, to mm -hmm. say. But in any ways, that would suggest that Poland is also not responding fully to the extent, which is anyway, I would say, being Polish, uh, impressive uh, from the side of the society, and quite surprising, uh, given also the polarization how the society responds, but would you still argue that there would be a greater potential? Should we not have, you know, that kind of polarization? So kind of, you know, the response would be even more impressive? It may have been, although I think the the, the, the reaction to, to the war in Ukraine is is very specific for Poland for uh, for historical reasons. So I don't want to uh, minimize that as well. Uh, we'll see how it goes. 
um, obviously. Uh, the instant reaction was there was a clear pattern of divergence between between uh, Serbia on the one hand and Hungary to some extent and Poland and, and, and the Czech Republic. But this was already visible in our data. So if we look at the data we have from 2019, uh, attitudes to Russia were already much more positive in Serbia and Hungary than they were in the other two countries. And we've already seen at that level, uh, at that point, actually, clear relationships with media consumption as well, a clear role of um, uh, the media that are controlled by the state, so public service media in particular, in feeding um, a, a pro-Russian stance uh, mm-hmm. in both of these two uh, countries with, with a very, very different pattern in, um, in Poland and Czech Republic. Yeah, I, uh, I I just want to add one thing, and then uh, give, I see Václav, you you want to add your uh, your comment, but isn't that so that it's not so much about you know particular instance of disinformation like push a button have an effect, but it's much more about what in what you're describing, it's much more about structure and the process that takes more of a time that has the political impact. That this is what your research is clearly demonstrating. Yeah, I would agree that uh, uh, it rarely uh, is the case that uh, disinformation or any kind of information has such a direct, uh, immediate effect uh, on on voters or or population in, in general. Uh, what what we are seeing is much more uh, closer to the long term gradual uh, change of the nature of public sphere that uh, over the course of of the years uh, changes uh, attitudes of of, of people and makes them easier to uh, convince uh, in in support of uh, the illiberal government. And I just uh, want to address that that point on the relationship between political behavior and news consumption. That's always the the holy grail of political communication research, to to be able to establish an effect. And it, it, it is rarely the case that we are able to do that. In our research, we don't have the, the kind of data to, to prove this, but looking at the results of the last elections in um, several Central and Eastern European countries, we, we can see a clear distinction between uh, how elections uh, uh, turn out in, in Hungary and Serbia, in both countries, uh, the uh, incumbent uh, governments and presidents have um, successfully defended their positions, uh, whilst in Czech Republic and Slovenia, uh, the uh, populist slash uh, illiberal governments uh, and, and the leaders have lost their their power, and they were they were not able to to uh, get their second term. So, uh, and if we look at the state of media in in, in these four countries, uh, that there's there's a clear division distinction because despite all the troubles that uh, are observed uh, in the Czech media and Slovenian media scene, they are still pluralistic and they still allow for strong uh, oppositional voices to be heard in the national public sphere. That's not really the case in in Hungary and Serbia anymore. Fantastic. We'll stop here and recommend uh, our listeners to go and check uh, the links we're going to attach to this uh, podcast recording. Uh, so follow uh, a liberal turn project at Loughborough University. And uh, I want to thank you both for uh, discussing and inviting me to this uh, fantastic conference. Again, I'm really proud to be advisory board member here, uh, along with several other prominent uh, researchers or uh, stakeholders uh, from the media. I think it's a unique project of that kind and that needs to be, the story of it needs to be told 
more. So we'll have more conversations on it, hopefully, across Central Europe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Wojciech. Thank you.